The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Philippians chapter 3. And if you're having problems or trouble finding Philippians chapter 3, it comes right after chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I'm going to ask you a question. You know, I was thinking about that we live in this land of opportunity, and without a doubt, with all the problems that we're experiencing in this country and we're seeing that's happening with decaying morals and what we, you know, the sin that used to be in the back alley now is up front and even has its own pride parade and up front and they're celebrating this wickedness. But with all that, folks, this is still the greatest country in the world where it's the land of opportunity where you can still open up your business, still have freedom to worship so far. Uh, but with all the opportunities that we have in this great land of ours, what is the highest, the most holiest ambition that you can have? What is it? Is it to live a holy life? Well, that's a high ambition. Would it be to be a soul winner? And we talked about that last Sunday. That's wonderful, wonderful ambition. But none of those things are the best or the highest or the holiest. And by the way, I want you to think of these things in your own life right now about your ambition. What motivates you? What are you striving for? Because everybody's motivated by something. Everybody's striving for something. Or let me put it another way. Everybody's going somewhere, Right? I'm not just talking about heaven, but everybody's going somewhere. So when you get there, wherever you're going, where will you be? Think about it. If you're going somewhere, I'm not just talking about heaven, but with your life, and when you get there, where will you be? When you accomplish your goals that you have, what will you have? What was the highest and holiest ambition that I could possibly have? Do you have a purpose for your life? I mean, do you really have a purpose? Because most folks I know are just plowing water, shoveling smoke. They're living to just exist, exist to live. They don't have a purpose in life, and they're walking around like looking their, like their driver's license picture. And somebody once said it's one of the most dangerous forms of human error is forgetting what one is trying to achieve. In the book of Acts, Peter points out in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, he says, And with many other words he testified, exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Save yourself from this illogical, unreasonable, contradictory, unorthodox generation. And basically means get off this merry-go-round. And many of us are simply drawing our breaths and drawing our salaries fighting to live, and we're just wasting time, really. And sometimes the land of opportunity does that to us. But the highest, holiest quest for the best ambition for me, for you, or for anyone could be, is right here in Scripture, Philippians chapter 3, and verse 10, beginning in verse 10. And Paul just puts it in five easy words. He says, that I may know him. That I may know him. That is the ambition of the greatest Christian who ever lived. His name was Paul. Paul's goal, his master uh, passion was Christ. 
Paul met him on the way to Damascus, and now he wanted to know him personally. And he puts it in these words. And let's continue reading verses 10 through 14. It says, That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained, or I am already perfected. But I press on that I may lay hold of that which is Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself having been apprehended, but one thing I do. One thing I do. Paul has distilled it to one thing. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which were behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, you can write in them or underline that phrase, upward call. King James says that's the high calling. What is the high calling of God, the highest calling of God? Quest for the best is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. To know the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's many of us who settle for so much less. Now, he speaks of here of fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And when I was reading that, to me, that means what causes me to ask a question. And the question is this. Are the things I'm living for worth Jesus dying for? That's what it means being conformed to his death. Are the things I'm living for worth Jesus dying for. In light of Calvary, are these things that I'm really striving for in this country? Paul saw that before his goals that he had, before meeting the Lord Jesus Christ, they were unworthy. Now he brings all his goals in life into one magnificent obsession, and that is that I may know him. And as Jeremiah put and Jeremiah 9 and verses 23, 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth, for these I delight, says the Lord. So, folks, it's not about your education. It's not about money. It's not about power, prestige. It's about knowing God. And knowing God is not simply knowing about him. A lot of people have all the facts about Jesus, but they don't really know. They defend all the kind of doctrines, the deity, the virgin birth, and so forth. However, the need of the hour of this country is to know God. A lot of Christians out there in this great country just know about God. And that's part of the reason we're seeing what we're seeing in the world today, because their knowledge does not produce a personal relationship. So knowing God is not merely having information about God, but having this intimate relationship with God. It is the kind of relationship that Jesus prayed that we would have. And he says in John 17, verse 3, and this is the eternal life, that they may know you, one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this should be the desire of all those who've been born twice, of the believer's heart, to know Christ more intimately. And frankly, when I looked at this scripture, these verses, 10 through 14, it challenged my own heart. And I want to lay down four things this morning in this passage, four principles 
that we can make this a priority in our life. And number one is we need to fix our focus. That's what Paul does here. What's our focus? To know him. That is the goal of Paul's life. He wanted to know him personally. He doesn't say, I want to know more about him. And you can sit here in church, soak and sour, and learn much about him and not know him. To know him is more important than just having all the facts. We are to know him personally. He's a real person, not just made up character that sits up there on heaven or imagination. So I'm not asking if you know all the doctrines, you know the word of God real well and so forth. You know theology. I'm going to ask you this morning, do you truly know him? You know, Philip spent three and a half years attending the best seminary you can possibly go to. Philip spent three and a half years with the Lord Jesus Christ. Three and a half years walking. The greatest professor, the greatest teacher. And look what happens in John 14, verses 7 through 9. If you had known me, you would have known my father. This is the part where Philip asks, show us the father. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it's sufficient for us. So he spent three years, three and a half years, listening to the words of Jesus, all the teachings. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? Spent three and a half years with him. You have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So we talked about in our series, Let's Talk Church, about word of God being the authority. But we don't just study the word of God. It's not merely just knowing the word of God. It's knowing also the God of the word. And this man, Paul, is writing Philippians. He's an old warrior, all beat up, in prison. He's getting ready to die. And what's interesting, he's talking about knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't think he's already attained all the knowledge and everything that he needs. He's not already perfect. And he wants to know more. And again, in verse 10, he says that I may know him. And again, folks, it's, it's impossible to know somebody if you don't spend intimate time with people, spending time with that individual. And folks, when I get to heaven, I want to meet someone that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and I hope you do too, not just, hey, I know about you, but somebody that I already know heart to heart. And look again at that verse. He wanted to know him powerfully. It says Paul speaks of the power of his resurrection. What's the power of his resurrection? That's the Holy Spirit of God that quickened and waked, raised up the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. That same power. It is goal of our life to have power over sin, over self, over Satan, over the circumstances. And God wants us to live powerfully with that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul said, I want that resurrection power in my life. Do we have that goal in our life? Do we want that power? He also wanted to know him personally, powerfully, and passionately. He says, in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, he's talking about Calvary sufferings. Now, there's no way you can participate in Christ's Calvary suffering. He had to do that alone. He suffered to it 
through alone. He died on the cross, but he's still suffering today. Christ has a griefed heart. Looking at this world, just like if he looked at Israel and said, hey, how many times I wanted to gather you together, but you didn't even want to? Cried. Lord Jesus has a broken heart. So again, I'm going to ask you this question. Do the things that break the heart of Jesus break yours? In Proverbs 8.13, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. Now, I said this before. We talked about it, about soul winning. When was the last time that you truly shed a cheer over a soul that was mortgaged to the devil? When was the last time you looked at the world and cried? When was the last time that you looked at your friends and relatives that are not saved? And your heart was grieved. Not only did he want to know him personally and powerfully and passionately, but he wanted to know him preeminently. Because I say that because he says, I want to be conformed to his death. That is, I want to die with him that I might live with him. And we will never know the power of this resurrection if we're not made conformable to his death. Because without death, there is no resurrection. And it simply means this when we come to Christ about our priorities. It's no to me and yes to Jesus. That's all it means. No to me and yes to Jesus. And the whole point here is relationship is more than important than any of our accomplishments that we have in this world. So what we need to do first is fix our focus. Look at our priorities. What are you striving for? And our focus should say, I want to know Jesus, not know about him. Now, you have to know about Jesus to know Jesus, but you can know facts about him without knowing who he truly is. Second, we need to face our faults. In verse 12, Paul says, Now that I have already attained, or I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay a hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of me. Now, here's the principle. Don't raise your hand, but... Ask yourself the question, how many of you are satisfied with your spiritual life right now? How many are you satisfied? Any satisfied saints here this morning? Well, if you're satisfied with your spiritual life right now, you're aiming too low. You're simply aiming too low. You say, well, Cornet, don't you think I'm a good Christian? Don't you think we're all good Christians showed up to church today, especially my cousins, right? They all had to wake up early and everything. Well, I'm going to tell you this. I think Paul was a great Christian. And yet, Paul said this at the end of his life, that I may know him. That I may know him. He said, this is what I'm striving for. This is my goal. I'm pressing toward with every ounce of my energy, my spiritual body. I have this ambition and burning ambition. I'm focused on it. He was not satisfied. If you're satisfied, you're aiming too low. And, you know, sometimes you ask this question, Paul, you don't know Jesus? You wrote about 30% of the Bible, the epistles, and so forth. You suffered for him. Don't you know him? Well, you see, he says, there's so much more to know about him. And, you know, we say Christopher Columbus discovered America, right? But think about it. How much of America did he really discover? There's so much more to know about Jesus. And no growing Christian is ever satisfied with his spiritual attainment. 
No growing Christian is satisfied. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not satisfied with your salvation, Jesus, and things like that, but you're not satisfied with yourself. You may be satisfied with your salvation, but I want to learn more and more about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I saw a cowboy pin that said, I ain't what I ought to be, I ain't what I'm going to be, but thank God I ain't what I was. He's been saved, but he's not satisfied with his own spiritual condition. He's growing in the Lord. And some of us are thinking we're already attained, we're perfect. You know, husband was arguing with his wife, and he said, you must think I'm a perfect fool. And she said, honey, nobody's perfect. And folks, we're not perfect, none of us. No matter who you are, what position you hold, you're not perfect. And Paul, at the end of his life, said, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know Jesus. And what a challenge that should be to us. So if you're satisfied with your Christian life, I would say you're aiming too low. Because even Paul did not think that he knew Lord Jesus Christ personally, powerfully, passionately, vehemently as he should. So he said he needed to grow at the end of his life. And I think we all need to grow. And again, I want to point out I'm satisfied with my Savior, I'm satisfied with my salvation, but I'm not satisfied with Cornet. I would think after all these years being raised in a Christian home, dad being a pastor and so forth, that I would be a better Christian, I would be a better prayer warrior, that I would know more about the Bible. But I know that there's so much more that I need to learn. There's so much more I can open up the Word of God and learn about Jesus. So, and yet, not disappointing, but way it kind of encourages me because I know I'm not satisfied, and that's what drives me. And Paul here took inventory of his house and said, I'm not satisfied. You know, before he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul was satisfied, right? He said he was a proud young Pharisee. He considered himself faultless. He had the best teachers. He was petted, praised, flattered for his zeal. He had it all, respect. But in verse 8, he says this, Yet indeed I also count all these things lost. He had all these master's degrees too. For the excellence of knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Count them over as rubbish. You know, New King James Version, those British people kind of soften it up. They know that's rubbish. King James Version puts it as dong. And I believe the original Greek word was doo-doo. That's what he counted all those things. Paul saying, this stuff I used to value so highly is nothing to me now for the excellent knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most wisest person ever lived, one of my favorite Bible characters, Solomon. He looked at everything at the end of his life. And what we need to learn, you know, sometimes we only learn it when we come to the end of the life. <laughs> but he, at the end of his life, too, he looks at everything in Ecclesiastes 1 2. He says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. He had it all. Everything's vanity. And the problem with many of us is this. We know people that we think we're better than, and that gives us a sense of satisfaction. 
you know, we sometimes think you may be a better Christian than the most people you know in your circles, but we're all light years away from what we could be for Christ. And I want to tell you something. There may be some satisfied saints here this morning, and the reason is is because we compare ourselves to other people, which is not the standard. And we don't, care, uh, don't compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the standard. And when that happens, we fall into two dangers. And I've shared them with you before. You know, you lie down next to some hypocrite. You say, well, I'm better than that guy. You're a little inch longer than him. But the Romans 3.23 says, we all have sinned and fall short for the glory of God. So we don't measure ourselves by other people, other Christians. And the other danger is, if we compare ourselves for Paul, to Paul, for example, you can say, well, I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to attain that. I can never be like him. And we get discouraged in our Christian walk. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 said, imitate me, just I also imitate Christ. But he didn't say, be like me. He said, follow Christ as I follow Christ. Don't be like me. Paul was not satisfied. So don't compare yourself to other Christians. Be satisfied with Jesus. Be satisfied with your salvation. But are you becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to have this holy dissatisfaction. And again, folks, if you're satisfied with your spiritual life, you're aiming too low. We ought to be all growing Christians. Now we need to fix our focus. That is, I want to know him. Face your faults. Paul had some faults. We'll talk about those more here in a second. And forget your failures. Look at verse 12. Now that I've already attained or already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. So that's him facing his faults. He knew, I mean, this is the greatest Christian of all time. He knew that there was room for growth. And look at verse 13. He talks about forgetting his failures. He says, brethren, I do not count myself have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. But this one thing I do, and the principle is this, you're never a failure until you quit. Forget those things that you're behind. You know, sometimes we feel bad for ourselves. I'm not the Christian I should be and blah, blah, blah. We have a pity party. Forget those things. Put that in God's forgetfulness. If you forgave you for those sins, move on. But we have too many quitters in our modern-day Christianity. We have people in church who used to serve the Lord, but they have quit. And the main reason they have quit is because they got prosperous, this land of opportunity. You know, I know a lot of Christians who came from the Soviet Union, and folks to get to church in the old country, my family, just like the rest of the families, and they can tell you, had to take public transportation, three to four buses. And they're not nice buses as your Coda buses here. You know, we got chickens and goats on there, wintertime. But now they moved to America, 
the land of opportunity. They no longer have to take public transportation because they got four to five cars in their driveway. But yet, to do back, they don't serve in the church passionately like they used to. They don't do things that they used to do back in the old country. They got prosperous. They bought a lake house somewhere, so that's where they spend their weekends instead of coming to church. And again, it's not the weekend, it's Lord's Day. Sunday is Lord's Day. And you say, well, I need recreation. Well, God wants you to have it. But we need to ask ourselves this question, is my recreation bringing me to my goal in life? Or have the blessings of God that he gave me are taking me actually away from God who has given me those blessings? Are we quitting because of the blessings? And folks, we need to learn that no matter how far you ran the race, if you quit, if you stop running, you're going to lose. You can be halfway around the track while others are coming behind you, right? But if you stop, you're going to lose the race. They're going to pass by. And again, sometimes people say, well, I failed in my Christian life. I guess I can't be this kind of a Christian God wants me to be. Folks, we all have failures, right? And look up here. If that's your life, if you messed up in life and so forth, you can be that Christian. Yes, you can. Just don't stop running. Fix your focus. Face your faults. Forget your failures. Now, when I say forget your failures, I mean admit them. Take them to God. God is a holy God. He will not overlook sin. Admit them. And Paul says, this one thing I do. He faced his faults. He had all these things before him. And he says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And sometimes, you know, the older folks, you also say, well, we get to 40, 50, 60 years of age, we have this locked-in mindness, and we say, this is all I can be. This is who I am. You're hooked to that. Get unhooked for that. Christ used, I mean, God used Abraham. <laughs> How old was Abraham? Each and one of us can serve God but we can't stop running. You're never a failure until you quit, so don't stop growing. And you know what the Satan does is he binds us to the past. He binds us to the past. He's bringing up all these things all the time. And we can't look to the future, what God has in store for us. But we need to put our eye on the goal. And what's our goal? The focus? To know him. And one thing I learned about running a race, you cannot run a good race by looking over your shoulder. Anybody try to do that? You can actually fall, right? We had somebody fall, Mark. Running a race. And if you want to put on the finger, one of the Christian's biggest problems is right here, dwelling on the past. Now, sometimes we dwell on the past in the bad ways, all the bad things, and sometimes we dwell on the past in all the good things. And so many of us are stuck in the past. In Luke 9, verse 62, Jesus said to them, said this, no one having put his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Don't look back. Run. It's the same truth of Christian life. We cannot sit there and be focused on our failures, disappointments in life, and heartaches, and past all these 
without, we have, that's going to prevent you from having victory in your Christian life. And let me give you some things that you need to forget from the past so you can move forward. Forget past guilt. There's things that we need to forget in our life. One of them is past guilt. Paul was persecuting the church. This is what Paul says about himself in Philippians 3.6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. You see, Paul knew the things he had done, and they were very, very terrible. Look at Acts 22.4. says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. The way was what the Christian, early Christians called. He was persecuting Christians. In 1 Timothy 1.13, it says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, Solomon, now I obtain mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Do you see Paul having a pity party here? No. He says, yes, I did those things. But I'm moving forward. He refused to be haunted by this ghost of guilt that prevents us from serving the Lord. And sometimes we say, well, I'm damaged goods. I'm limited what I can do for Christ. No, you're not. Because the gospel is the good news. So Paul forgets failures and runs. And every Christian, folks, every Christian failed God at some point. You take all of our favorite Bible characters or heroes, you will find failures. And failures do not nullify you from serving the Lord. Everybody makes mistakes. That's why they put erasers on pencils. You ever think about that? You're like, oh, probably going to make a mistake anyway. There's only one person who ever lived the Christian life. Only one. And his name is Jesus. So we don't need to fret when we have our occasional sinking spells. But I want to pause and say again, <clears throat> God is a holy God. He will not overlook sin. So don't overinterpret when I say forget about these things and move on. Because in Matthew 5 and verses 23, 24, where it says, Therefore bring your gift to the altar. Then remember you have something against your brother. Leave your gift before the altar. Go your way. Be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. We must deal with sin. And once we deal with sin, we've been forgiven. Move on. Don't let Satan use other people or anyone else to remind you of your past. And if Satan reminds you of the past, just remind him of his future. Run the race. And we also need to not just forget our past guilt, but past glory. It's the big one, and we don't really think about it. Forget about the good old days. I mean, Paul had incredible things that he could be proud of. But he says in verse 7, I counted them lost for Christ. Paul forgets his past achievements. And we can't use our past achievements or the glory days as an excuse 
to not to run the race today. We should be thankful for all his benefits, as Psalm 103.2 puts, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We should count our blessings, but don't use past victories, folks, as an excuse to live in self-satisfaction today. Listen, success can create Success can create unhealthy tendency to cling on to those glory days. We're constantly reminiscing about the good glory days. Have you ever been around those folks? Talk about how the church used to be. The glory days. How they used to share their faith in serving the church. Remembering the glory days. You know, I just recently rewatched the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Anybody watch that movie? There's an Uncle Rico. That's always reminiscing about his glory days, right? Throw that football over the mountains. Don't be Uncle Rico. Move on with life in your present season. We can't let former victories create this relaxation or self-satisfaction in the present. You know, most of you know I'm a basketball fan, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with March Madness, right? Basketball tournament for the college. And when they win... You know, to do the interviews, and they say, hey, we won. You know, we're just getting ready for the next game. We're enjoying the victory for a moment. And that's the thing with that tournament. You can be a number one seed, number 10 seed, but it's whoever's good that day that's moving on. So we can't let our yesterday's victory dictate and let us think that we're going to win today. So in the Christian life, every day is a new challenge, new opportunity. And again, Paul had some amazing victories. He could have lived in his glory days, but we don't see that happening. We also need to forget our past grief. You know, there's brothers and sisters in Christ who did him wrong, but he continued running. He didn't sit there and soak sour and cry. Did he party? Folks, there will be people that will criticize you, and oftentimes, they'll be the ones that are closest to you. I get people criticizing me for my sermons all the time. Can you believe that? But it's okay. Say, you know, your sermon set us back 100 years. I said, I'm sorry. I was kind of hoping it would set you back 2,000 years. It's okay. Honestly. And I don't want to be loved by everyone. When you're loved by everyone, it means you're a people pleaser. I'd rather be like Jesus because he's the standard. And there's one person, one character that he always strived to please, and that was the Father. And let me give you a scripture that's not found anywhere, 1-1. Don't offend anyone. You're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. And as one pastor put, if we please God, it does not matter whom you displease, and if you displease him, it does not matter whom you please. And in Luke 626 kind of echoes that where it says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. When all men speak well of you. But what did Jesus say? They hated me. They're going to hate you. And folks, obviously there's going to be a problem if everybody's going to say in the world that we love Cornet so much. There's something wrong with that. Because you and the world are always going to be at odds. But at the same time, we need to remember, 
as Solomon put in Ecclesiastes 7.21, says, do not take to heart everything people say. That's your servant cursing you. You know, sometimes we're too quick to get upset, and that also paralyzes. How dare they say that? Well, you thought about, like, you know, they might be having a bad day. Maybe they were feeling hangry. Maybe they worked in the nursery with your kids. So we shouldn't rush to those things and pay attention to everything that people say. Also, forget your past grudges. A lot of people hold grudges. And the longer you hold the grudge, the heavier it gets. And if you run in a race, do you show up with a trench coat, like, you know, some bags? No, when you're running a race, you want to be as light as you can. And these grudges, I've seen people, people's lives, so they're, they're holding grudges about people that don't, they don't even know that there's a grudge against them. You know, we're holding these grudges, paralyzing ourselves, and we can't run the race. One pastor gave me some advice. He said, if people are being mean to you, don't hold grudges and all that stuff. Just tell Jesus on them and move on. Don't hold a grudge. It's not going to do anything for the other person. It's going to do something to you. And, you know, we have a great example of a person who had every right to hold the grudge. In the book of Genesis 45, you know, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but it, it's the story about Joseph. story about Joseph. And we know Joseph and everything that happened to him, but he saw everything from God's point of view. And you remember the story where he's revealing himself to his brothers? Can you imagine what that was like? His brothers look at him saying, oh, snap. But did Joseph do any of those things? Says, how dare you treated me this way? I'm going to do this and that. No, look at, I'm just going to read one verse for you. In Genesis 45, 8, it says, So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me the father of Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, and the ruler throughout the land of Egypt. You see that word, but God? So he saw it from God's point of view, and he didn't hold any grudges. Joseph knew that God had a plan for his life, a race for him to run, and the fulfillment of that plan, and looking ahead, he broke the power of the past. He didn't hold any grudges. Oswald Chambers once said, friends, beware of looking back at what you once were when God wants you to become someone you've never been. We spend too much time looking back if we never accomplish our goals. We all know the story of Lot's wife, right? She looked bad. She turned into a pillar of salt. One kid in Sunday school class, well, that's nothing. My mom was driving to a grocery store. She looked back and turned into a telephone pole. You can't drive a car looking backwards. And the best way not to go backwards is what? To go forward. You can't run a race looking back. Forget those things that are in the past. And the last point is firm up your faith. Look what it says again in verse 12. Not that I've already attained 
already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Laying hold of that which Jesus Christ laid hold of you. Let me tell you something. He didn't save you to serve the world, the flesh, the devil. He didn't save you to come sit here at church, sit soaking sour. No, we sing a song. You heard me say it before. We're standing on the promises of God, but all we're doing is just sitting on the premises. But he saved you to know him. Now, this may be contradictory to what I preached last Sunday, but it, really it's not. He didn't even save you to become a soul winner. You should be a soul winner. He didn't even save you to be a Bible student, but you should be in your life. But you see, he saved you that you might know him. And when you truly know him, you can't help but become a soul winner. You can't help but become a Bible student. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Brethren, I do not count myself apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And then in verse 14, what is that? What, what is he striving for? I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do we have any runners here? I know Frank is a runner. Anyone used to be? On a track team, I was playing basketball, and the track coach tried to recruit me. I remember I went out in the track field, and he gave me a pair of shorts, and that was it. I said, can't do it. Just can't wear those shorts. But I know this about running. When you're running, how many things are on your mind? If you're a good runner, if you're a good runner, there's only one thing on your mind. I mean, every ounce, every inch, every nerve, every fiber is you're pressing towards that goal. Because the runner narrows all his interest to one thing. And Paul narrowed it to, to know him. But one thing I do, there's no side issue. And the principle here is concentration. The secret of power is concentration. A believer must devote himself to running this Christian race. You know, it, how, do, how, no athlete, how do athletes succeed? They succeed by specializing, right? For example, there's, you know, some athletes, they may be, have an exceptional talent and they'd be good at two sports. But most athletes specialize in one. For example, Michael Jordan, the GOAT, the greatest basketball player of all time. But he tried baseball. It's not good. You specialize by narrowing your goal. You're concentrated. Just like Nehemiah. In chapter 6, verse 3, he says, So I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work, so I cannot come down why should the work cease while I leave and go down to you? I'm concentrating on my work here. I ain't got time for those side issues. It's a matter of our values in our life. What are our priorities? What matters most for us? And folks, if you look at these lights, don't do it right now. I don't want you to go buying them, but they're diffused. They're diffused. But if you concentrate them enough, what do we get? You're going to get a laser. 
and a laser can burn through solid steel. When we were little boys, and maybe some of the cousins remember, we used to take the magnifying glasses, you know, put it in the sun, and what we would do is burn leaves. All that power of the sunlight ray just concentrates into a little laser. And sometimes we would put it on their back and just wait, and then start running because they're going to beat you up. But the concentration is the secret of power. And we can't serve two masters as we read in Matthew 6, 24. It says no one can serve two masters. Either will hate one and you'll love the other. Now, he's not talking about having two jobs. You can have two jobs, but he's saying you can't have two masters. And the master tells you what to do, exactly what to do, not part of the time, but all the time. Who's your master? And James put it in 1.8, said, He's a double-minded man. He's unstable all his ways. That's why Paul narrowed his concentration, this one thing I do. He didn't say, uh, this one thing I do in the middle with these other 100 things. One thing I do, I press towards the goal in verse 14, the price upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But in our lives, this brings up a real problem, right? I have to do my job. All you know, I work. Except for job. I have to have my rest. I think recreation is legitimate. But listen to me very carefully what I have to learn. If your job, your rest, your recreation, your friends, they're not helping you towards this goal, they're wrong for you. They're wrong for you. And here's a test you can take surrounding your friends. And all those things. Are they making you more in all those blessings like the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are they doing the comp- complete opposite? You're getting so involved in those things that it's taking you away. Everything God's given you to bless you, it's taking you way further away from God. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, he says, All these things are awful, lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. All these things are good. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with friends, relationship, money, and, you know, and, you know, people sometimes say, oh, rich people are sinners and so forth. No, there's lots of rich people in the Bible. Nothing wrong with those things unless they're taking you away from God. There's nothing wrong with having a better house. There's nothing wrong with having family vacation and so forth, better car and so forth, but are those things is what you're concentrating? Is that what your concentration is on? Is that your goal? They will take you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, these good things, these blessings that we have in this country become bad things when they take you away from the best things. And the best things you can have, the quest as Paul put it, to know him. And I know sometimes I get, you're just being too narrow again. Now you're getting it. Narrow your goal. If you don't want power in your life, in your Christian walk, that's fine. But if you want power, you'll narrow your goal. But one thing I do, you know, that's why I said it kind of, challenged my own heart because I had these goals and so forth and have you ever kind of tried to take them 
and put them into one ambition. When you're trying to do those things, you're going to have to let some things go. Verse 14 again, I press toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He puts his eye on the goal, and that's the reason he says, I forget all those other things. They come along or God gives them to me, that's fine, but one thing I do, you've got to have determination in your Christian life. Not only determination, but you have to have direction as well as discipline in your life. You know, Summer Olympics are coming up here in July 23rd in Tokyo, and I read what one Olympic runner said, and here's what he said. Tells me if this sounds like really what Paul is talking about. He said this, the only way to win a race is to forget all previous victories, which will give you false pride, and all former failures, which will give you false fears. Each race is a new beginning. Pressing onto the finish tape is all that's important. Isn't that what Paul's saying? I thought that was wonderful. Got to write that down. You forget all your past victories, that will give you false pride. Forget all your past failures, that will give you false fears. You put everything into the race today. Keep your eye on a goal. So fix our focus. The one thing I do, that I may know him. Face our faults. I can't say I'm perfect. I've already attained. Forget our failures, which are behind. And then we need to firm up our faith and say, I'm going to make it a goal. I'm going to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one last word, and I'll be finished. Promise. I know some of you are already probably smelling the barbecue. But it always kind of intrigues me. Do you know when, when Paul said this? And again, church, when somebody says, when did Paul say this or when did Paul write this? 90% of the time, jail. Paul's in jail. And he's writing the letter to Philippians and others. He's writing the prison, and really, this is the end of his life. In a couple of years, he's going to be beheaded. Did you know that? He knew that his life is coming to an end. And he's not asking for pity for any of the Christian churches. He continues running the race, continues instructing them. He's the near end of his life. He's about to step over to eternity. He's about to die. And he says, I'm running for the goal. Think about it. Paul now is old. Bandy leg. He's been all over the places, walking, not flying, and taking cars and so forth. Think about the toll it took on his body. The heat and traveling and so forth. All that he did, stoned. He had beaten for 195 lashes. And he's in prison and he's running. That's an encouragement. And that also tells me that you could be running a race from anywhere. It doesn't have to be this great country. You can run a race in China. You can run a race anywhere that you may know him. You know, G.I. Packer put it well in his book, Knowing God. I don't know if you've, any of you read it. But there's one quote that stood out for me. It says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. You having problems with your business? You having problems in your families? 
Here's what you do. Know God. To know God. All those things will fall into accord if that is your goal. Everything in life flows from this fountain, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, not about him. And if we're to succeed in our Christian life and honor God by our lives that we live, folks, we need to run his race. And his race is ran his way. We'll have to run with our eyes upon him towards that price. As we sang this morning, that song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. How true that is. So getting your focus solely on Jesus will give you direction you need to successfully run the race for his glory. So I will end with this, the same questions which I began. When you accomplish your goals, what will you truly have? Temporary things? When you get to where you're headed, where will you be? And is what you're living for worth Jesus dying for? And a wise person will set their earthly goals on heavenly gains. Amen? And I know you guys are really hungry right now, so let's pray. Father, again, we want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to be in your house. And today is a special day for me that I'm here with cousins and relatives and uncles. And let us ponder, let us process what we heard today. What is... You know, our parents brought us over to this great country. But what are, what are our goals? We can do anything here, but we accomplish. But when we get those things done, what will we really have? Father, I pray that each person here this morning analyzes their life and looks at their race. Maybe they stopped in the middle of the track. They need to pick up running again. Help them. You see every heart here. And Father, I continue to pray for this country, for our president, for everything that's going on, Father. And let us be true Christians and receive it as from your hand. Some things are hard to accept, but the things that are happening in our country just prove that your word is true. And we know that ultimately, Father, we cannot save America, but let everything be done according to your will. And we pray for our leaders. And we pray for churches that will stand up and present the true gospel and that we don't stop running the race and get indulged in these earthly things. And as we leave this house today, Father, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray, amen.